This is a special podcast from the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, recorded live during the 2019 Chronic Disease Academy. In this speech, Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, NACDD board president, shares his president's challenge to address the social determinants of health. So I'd like to take a little bit of time uh, to sort of set the stage, uh, talk about my uh, president's challenge a bit, and how I conceptualize it. The talk is called Socially Determined, Moving to Public Health 3.0, and then you've got the subtitle. But I think the subtitle of this talk could just as easily be called Moving from Why and What to How. So I think we've spent the past decade talking about why this is important. And we've also spent a lot of time talking about what this is and what are these things that are shaping the decisions and the choices that we make. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but then what we really want to spend our time doing, and I think we've been really successful this week in starting to provide a roadmap for this is help all of us to move into that space of how and how we take these dollars that we get from our partners, from the federal government, from state governments, and begin to think very broadly about the systemic relationships of all these factors that shape and determine our behavior. So we began uh, earlier this week with a presentation on these issues. Uh, Carol Hall Walker from Rhode Island and the Department of Health there talked about their commitment to health equity and to the social determinants of health. And she showed us this picture, which is a graph that shows health expenditures on the bottom axis, on the X axis, and on the Y axis, it shows life expectancy. And what you can see from the graph is that consistently over time, the United States has spent far more on healthcare than any other industrialized nation, and we have less to show for it. I have a graphic, I don't know that it's publishable, but I was curious about the relationships on the spending in these issues and areas and life expectancy. And so I did some very crude regression analysis, and what I found was very interesting. It's that when you graph health spending and life expectancy, there's an inverse relationship. So the more you spend on health, the lower your life expectancy, and that's driven by us. And what's also interesting is that when you take us out of the equation and you graph social spending on life expectancy, it's a flat relationship. Social spending does not extend life expectancy, but when you throw the United States in the mix, it does and becomes a positive relationship. So our low social spending and our low life expectancy among 25 other industrial countries is so pronounced as a relationship that it drives what appears to be a statistical relationship among all the other data points. And so as a statistician, you would look at this and you'd say, well, is this an outlier and I have to take the outlier out of my data because it's distorting the relationship? Or is it the fundamental relationship? So I think it's something that we need to think about. Another graph which I think is very important for us to talk about, you'll hear a lot about this, and it gets woven throughout our political discourse, but you'll hear a lot about this in 2020 during the campaign, and that is the growth and income inequality in our society. And I think for me, this echoes a point that I think is very important for us to remind people, and that is that inequality, particularly income inequality, makes us sick. And it doesn't just make the poor sick, it makes all of us sick. When I began in my public health career, I had the distinct pleasure of hearing from Dr. Anthony Eiten, who's a leader in this space and has been for decades. But what you can see in this chart is that in the years after the 
Second World War, when we had an economic expansion, a substantial amount of the economic gains actually went to the bottom 90% of the income distribution. Uh, you can see that in right, the period right after the war, 80% of the income gains went to the bottom 90% of the income distribution. So that's almost perfectly equal. I mean, 90% going to 90% would be perfectly equal, but 80% went to the not bottom 90%. And you can see that just a small fraction, 20%, went to the top 10%. Now contrast that with the economic expansion that began in 2009. This data ends in 2012, uh, and obviously the expansion has continued today, and we've been fortunate in the last few years to see some actual wage growth, but the recovery was so slow and so pronounced in, in its slowness that large segments of our society lost ground during the economic recovery. And in fact, in the first five years of that economic recovery, the bottom 90% of income uh, distribution, and that's most of us in this room are in that section, our income in real terms diminished. Uh, meanwhile, 120% of the economic gains went to the top 10%. And when you swim in a sea of this inequality, it raises your levels of anxiety and stress. And anxiety and stress are very problematic in chronic disease. So we also have this chart from Fagy. I think you saw this several times and versions of this several times during the week. And it reinforces our message from public health to the broader world and particularly the healthcare world. And that is that healthcare matters, but it doesn't matter as much as all these other things that are important, such as biology, the environment, and our lifestyle. So one of the ways that this uh, concept of the upstream factors, risk and protective factors, social determinants of health is described as public health 3.0. And John Auerbach and Karen DeSalvo and a number of other important thought leaders have contributed this concept to us. And what I have here is a way to think about the evolution of public health over time. So public health 1.0 is the sort of kind of hygiene effort to sort of clean up water, clean up air, control infectious disease. So we have examples like infection control through quarantine and isolation for people with tuberculosis, clinical preventive measures such as immunizations and widespread immunizations. That really dominated public health up and through the 1960s. And of course, in 1960, we have the Surgeon General's report, which comes out and which announces that smoking will kill you. And this begins an effort to move public health into the policy systems and environmental change realm. And we've spent the last four or five decades building up our capacity to do this work. And along the way, we have realized that the systems in which we need to think about are far beyond just the healthcare systems, but they're the social context in which we live. And so we've gone from moving, you know, worrying about seatbelt policy and tobacco policy and diabetes prevention program and building out systems of community health workers to now moving into public health 3.0, where we need to think about economic, social determinants of health, such as food, transportation, and housing, and thinking about the partnerships that we need to forge with important non-healthcare settings, such as education, human services, transportation, housing, uh, departments of revenue. And one way to think about this is that we've gone from physical hygiene or environmental hygiene into social hygiene. And how do we control the factors in our social settings that are contributing to our illnesses and to the non-infectious diseases? Because in a lot of ways, when you look at epidemiological maps, GIS maps of these things, they behave like contagious disease. It is not an accident that you know we have clusters of high obesity prevalence 
prevalence in certain parts of the country, and we have clusters of lower obesity prevalence in other parts of the country. If you look at the obesity map, it looks like a contagious disease in the way it behaves. And this is true in Colorado. In eastern Colorado, we look an awful lot like our Midwestern counterparts. In western Colorado, we look an awful lot like our mountain counterparts in Utah, Montana, and Idaho. So when I think about the principles of how to practice public health 3.0, I, I try to follow the following ideas. The first is don't reinvent the wheel. Don't sit back in your state and say, hmm, what are our great ideas for tackling this? Because the fact is that we are all in all 50 states struggling with these issues. We are aware of these issues. And people are piloting some amazing projects. So learn from others. Find out what they've done. Borrow their best ideas. And the great thing about public health is you get rewarded for plagiarism. Uh, so <laughs> go ahead and plagiarize. One of the things that I like about the concept of public health 3.0 is uh, when I first started using computers, we were using Windows 3.2 or 3.1, I think it was. But within Windows 3.1 and within Windows 10 today is the DOS operating system that Bill Gates uh, sort of discovered in his garage. And so embedded within Public Health 3.0 is Public Health 2.0 and Public Health 1.0. We need to continue doing this. And this is a very important factor because there are thousands of people in my state. We have 800,000 people addicted to smoking. And we can't just move entirely upstream. We have to worry about the people who are sick today, the people who have grown up in this sea of toxic, unhygienic social settings. And we need to address their needs. But we need to distribute our resources and distribute our time and share our time with other partners in order to leverage our impact in a far greater arena than we currently do today. And when we do this, we want to follow another set of principles. The first is to use your training. Adhere to the evidence base. Uh, Ross Bronson was here this week talking about evidence-based public health. Carson Bauman has talked about economic analysis within evidence-based public health. And what you want to do is follow those principles of the evidence-based approach to public health. You want to come up with a clear understanding of the literature. You want to come up with a concise definition of the problem. You want to build up your evidence. And you want to move into the field, collect data, evaluate your progress, and then share your results with others. You want to get the model right. You want to understand, am I using a multifactorial model of behavior? Am I using a stages of change model? Am I using a sociological model? Ground your work in a theoretical understanding of the problem. Work through partnerships. This is one of the things that we do so well in public health. And finally, lead with humility. We can't walk into a partnership with the Department of Education. Professionals who have worked over 100 years in the year, you know, obviously not, they haven't worked for 100 years, but the field has worked for hundreds of years worrying about how we do a better job educating children, in particular how we educate children in an environment that's changing so rapidly. We don't have the answers, we have some answers, and we have some assistance that we can offer, but we can't come in and say to them, this is what you've been doing wrong. A lot of them know what they're doing wrong, and they need our help to fix it, and that's what we can do. So I wanna humor you, or humor me, for a moment, a little bit with a very complex systems dynamic map. And what I'd like to do, some of you who've worked with systems dynamics will, will recognize a lot of this work. Uh, I was introduced to this concept about eight years ago, but I want to show where the social determinants of health fit in. So we start with the kinds of diseases that we are all interested in, and they have them mapped up, and you know that they're related, that before death there is morbidity, and then before morbidity there are the precursors such as hypertension, diabetes, a COPD. And we know that these come from essential behaviors like smoking, essential risk factors like obesity, uh, exposure to secondhand smoke. So one of the things that we've spent a lot of time doing is thinking about the factors that lead to those decisions. And Public Health 2.0 
has thought about the healthiness of diet, the opportunities for physical activity, the kinds of factors that go into people's decisions to smoke, such as psychosocial stress, their availability of primary care. And this is really where we spent a lot of the last decade in my state doing work. And so I'd like to overlay the kinds of protective factors that we've been trying to insert into this dynamic. So the first set are examples of our nutrition work. So this is our efforts to sort of make healthier nutrition options available to people and drive them to healthier nutrition choices. The second, these are our efforts and strategies to initiate and increase people's levels of physical activity. Then we lay in our traditional tobacco strategies where we are trying to push people away, pull people away from the temptation to smoke. We've got tobacco taxes, we've got licensure, we've got efforts to control marketing, we've got our counter-marketing efforts. Then we have our primary care interventions. We've worked under 1305 and in other areas moving to the health system space and trying to transform the health system from being an acute care, episodic set of interventions into one that helps holistically to treat the whole person. Now, what we need to then lay in are the relationships, right? So this is your traditional systems dynamic map for chronic disease, and it shows how social factors are shaped, or you know, people's individual behaviors are shaped by the protective strategies, and then this leads to outcomes, and we hope to interrupt that. So around this sort of wraparound protective factors are the kind of circuit interrupters that break up that chain of disease. Now, what's missing from this is the social determinants of health. So where do they fit in? So one way to think about it is laying them sort of on the outside of this. So obviously, and I think we have to begin here as a field, and we have to remind our colleagues in other fields of this, and we have to speak truth to power into our society, that we have to confront the legacy of racism and inequality, discrimination, and injustice that is embedded in the fabric of American history. So that is where so much of this uh, grows out of and resides. And we know that that legacy of racism has shaped the geographic landscape of our society, whether we're talking about rural America, whether we're talking about suburban America, whether we're talking about urban America. Low levels of investment in minority communities. We have lack of economic opportunity. And we talk a lot about income inequality. A thing that you need to think about is the wealth inequality. That's actually far worse than income inequality. The fraction of American wealth that is held in African-American hands is minuscule compared to the amount of wealth that is held in white hands. And the lack of access to wealth, the lack of access to capital is crippling. It doesn't matter if you have an income of $100,000 a year. If you don't have capital, you can't borrow, you cannot buy a house, you cannot grow your capital. Just think about it. If you had invested $100,000 in the American stock market in 1980, right when Ronald Reagan came to power, you would have 54 times that amount today. So just $10,000, 54 times, if you pick any number, right? If you had had $1,000, you'd have $54,000 today without being Warren Buffett, right? Without being a genius at investing because the stock market has gone up 54 times from what it was. So capital is really a crucial factor and we need to think about the role of capital. We also want to think about stress and the sources of stress because stress grows out of a lack of economic opportunity. It grows out of a lack of economic security. So we need to confront that. So we want to think about the things that are creating stress and we want to think of strategies to help people mitigate stress. We also want to think about the inequitable and the low performing education system because in America education systems are tied to geography. Local property taxes fund an enormous part of education systems and when communities are poor they have low levels of investment in their schools 
and then the schools underperform the higher income wealthier schools. So all of this comes together and it creates with low levels of education, low levels of health literacy, and as health care becomes more complicated and you need more sophistication to manage it, you have a harder and harder time accessing health care. And so it's not just that you have economic barriers to health care, but you also have education barriers to health care, which then worsens inequities, it worsens the disparities. And then of course now we've come to understand that there are these other factors that happen to us and they're shaping us that grow out of a lot of these things and they connect to our adverse childhood experiences. And we've begun to get an understanding of those experiences and how public health can play a role in turning that model upside down and making youth a much more positive experience for all people, regardless of where they live, regardless of the income, regardless of their background. And in addition to that, we talk about social connectedness, the role that the community can play in helping support each other. So many times when you hear about people who've come up from poverty, the stories they tell are not about their individual brilliance. They're, they're stories about the neighbors that supported them and their family when they were growing up. They're stories about the community and how the community came together to provide them assistance to get to an educational setting or to look after them when their mom was working after when they came home from school. So social connectedness is an important vital resource that we want to foster in communities. And then finally, there's civic participation and power. When Anthony Eiden was asked, where do you begin this work? He began with the investing in community power. And he talked about the importance of building up communities that have been oppressed for centuries and helping them discover the power that they have, mobilizing the power, and getting involved. And you know, low levels of political participation in low-income communities are not an accident. They are designed within the system to alienate those communities that suffer because they out number those who benefit. And so their political power in a democracy is inherently greater. And so the system doesn't want them to participate in the political process. And so it encourages their alienation. One role that we can play is building up coalitions to reverse that process. So those factors come in and begin to shape these other determinants of health. And so what we're trying to do now and what we're involved in with the how is what are the circuit interrupters for those social determinants of health? What are the strategies that we can come down and work in partnership with partners in injury prevention, violence promotion, partners within our health departments, partners outside of our health departments, the strategies we can devise to interrupt those factors that are so important in shaping the landscape. Now, one way to think about this, and I'm going to talk about now different ways to think about this, comes from Healthy People 2020. Uh, they've come up with domains of the social determinants of health, and they have metrics in each of these areas that allow you to track and come up and think about interventions that you might want to develop that would then address economic stability, that would then address levels of education, healthcare, neighborhood and the built environment, and then social and community context. So these provide both data for us to understand where we need to focus our work and also strategies that might lead us to a more improved approach. But what we've now come to understand is that living conditions, institutional inequities and social inequities are also very important factors. And we begin to see that community capacity building is going to be an important part of this strategy. So not only do we need to leave with humility with our partners, our traditional partners in transportation, education, and other areas, but we need to lead with humility when we move into the communities because a lot of the knowledge about what to do, a lot of the knowledge about what the biggest challenges are in a community, that resides in the community. So we need to go in and listen. 
uh, rather than go in ready to talk. Um, culture is an important component, and it goes beyond just television. It's the sort of sea in which we live, and we cannot stop thinking about the ways in which our culture makes us sick. And our culture is in front of us every day. Our culture is in front of us when we take our phones out and stare at it. So think about how culture factors into all of this. But in addition, we have our built environment work, uh, the work with transportation partners and addressing geographic dispersion and how that shapes health. And finally, communication and coordination. We're doing a lot of that already. That's really what public health has been doing for decades. So we're good in these areas. Where we're not as good yet and where we don't have a lot of, uh, as many ideas and as much of a tradition and confidence. So there's mental health, substance abuse, and how do we form partnerships with those areas of public health. And then finally, there's economic development. And I think this is a particularly challenging and important space. And I called up Ursula Bauer, the former center director for chronic disease, who's now working with Dr. Jerome Adams, who's very interested in this particular space. And I said, do you have any suggestions of who I can talk to about the social determinants of health? And she said, yes, the most important people you need to talk to are the other CDC. And I said, what do you mean by the other CDC? And she said, community development corporations are, have a greater understanding of the relationships between income and health and how to address income factors to solve health problems than anyone else in the public health space. So when you get back to your states, find out who your community development corporations are and begin having conversations with them. They have a lot to teach you. So as you think about how to move forward, think about and remember what we do well already. So I think that there are five areas where we're already very strong. The first is modeling disease processes. So we understand how Certain conditions lead to certain behaviors, and certain behaviors lead to certain preconditions, which then lead to disease, which then leads to death. And so helping people understand those disease processes and mapping them out is going to be important. Approaching this with scientific rigor is going to be critical. Collecting, analyzing data, we do that better probably than any other field. Uh, we need to build that capacity. We need to support our colleagues in epidemiology, help them with new sources of data, connect those sources of data to traditional sources of data. We want to act as a trusted partner. We've been a trusted partner in our communities for decades. We want to continue to build on that and reach out further. And we want to leverage resources. We don't have a lot of resources. I heard somebody say earlier this week, there will never be enough money in public health. And that is true. Uh, but what money we do have, we can use in creative ways to free up other resources and to leverage impact and to show people how we can make a difference. So as we think about disruptive public health practices, I want to break those down into a couple of different areas. One is developing new projects, programs, uh, or public health practices. The second is showing people how we can leverage public health expertise. The third is using our resources to grease or leverage action in other sectors. And finally, taking a more muscular posture on the existing incentives in American society to manufacture illness. You know, I think it's no accident that we are the most capitalistic society and we are the sickest society. Because when you think about the way our healthcare system and our economy are structured, there is money in making us sick and there is money in curing us from our sickness. And there's not enough money in preventing sickness and in keeping us healthy. And so we need to flip that. And until we speak that truth powerfully, it's going to continue to be the reality. So as we think about potential Public Health 3.0 strategies and projects, uh, here are some ideas. 
uh, reentry systems with wraparound services for previously incarcerated individuals, building work-based learning systems for uh, people who are changing jobs or who are entering the labor force for the first time with low levels of education, building systems of prescription and referral uh, from healthcare to social services or to nutrition items. You've heard about food is a medicine and you know prescribing nutritional options for folks from doctors offices building accessible support and training systems for 16 to 25 year olds uh, people who are skipping high school and going straight into the workforce giving them opportunities to build life skills positive relationships employment training and matching you know the recruiting ads from the army are no accident the military provides this to a lot of people who go into it but there are other opportunities as well where you know on the job training provides a lot of these skills that are proven helpful to people and we need to facilitate that because it's not just about how do you make this particular food item or how do you build this particular structure in a, in a housing setting if you're working as a carpenter but it's also what do you do with your paycheck when you come home what do you do with frustrated individuals on the job site how do you relate to them how do you handle your stress a lot of that can be woven into worksite wellness. Advocating for policies that require health impact assessments and housing stock, education systems, helping people understand that each of these arenas, whether it's housing, education, community plans, transportation, community finance, human service systems, they all have a health component and making sure we remind our partners and our, com our community members about that. Uh, school district partnerships, uh, building systems, uh, of affordable community banking and investment, and that's where our CDC, Community Development Corporation partners come in. Uh, finally, leveraging public health expertise. So what do we know that other folks, you know, could learn from? Perhaps it's a public health approach to community policing and safety. Uh, perhaps it's a nurse-family partnership model, but for younger children, not for infants and pregnant women, but for the elementary school age population. How do we support moms and dads to be supportive of their kids, particularly if they themselves have low levels of education or don't speak the language? Because family is such an important component of educational success. How do we build up that family support? Designing the built environment, obviously. Uh, using a communities that care model uh, for community action and community mobilization to raise people's understanding of the issues that matter in their community and then helping them make a difference in those areas. Uh, one thing that we're looking at in our tobacco uh, program are what I could call uh, Rotary Club style community health coalitions. How do we get doctors, business people, uh, public health practitioners, and advocates in community-based organizations to come together to advocate for a healthier community. I think we, that's one of the most important things we can do because they can then go to policymakers and they can say, our local tobacco tax rate is too low. Uh, our kids have too much, it's too easy for our kids to get access to vaping products. Or there's too much junk food in the fast food setting and in, in the convenience stores. How do we change that context for kids? And then hotspotting pockets of need by block or census track. I had lunch this week uh, with Whitney Hammond, who was talking about her work in New Hampshire, where they took data from the American Community Survey, and they hotspotted 11 areas of need in that state, and they required people to target resources to those communities. Another way we can make a difference is using our resources to grease the skids. So we don't have a lot of money, but what can we do that sort of helps tip us over the edge or helps tip our partner over the edge? When we've talked about vending options in state agencies or in school settings, the number one problem we get told is that it's just not profitable. So maybe we can't pay them to simply stock the, the vending machines with healthy options, 
But what we can ask them is, what's it going to cost you to do that? What do you think it's going to cost you? And then how can we bring resources to bear to close that gap so that it looks more financially attractive for you to offer healthier foods? How do we access the potential of EHRs? How do we fund the operating costs of community health coalitions? Uh, there are a variety of ways that very small amounts of money can make a very crucial difference in activating change in the social determinants of health. And so I think it's about thinking creatively with very small pots of money and using them to make a difference. So finally, I want to talk about this muscular uh, advocacy role. Uh, we will never make progress until we assert our willingness to speak truth to power uh, consistently across the, the spectrum of issues that we face. And so obviously, uh, in my state, it, it, uh, tobacco tax is way too low. Uh, we rank 38th in the country. Uh, and we used to rank much higher, but we haven't raised our tobacco tax in 15 years. Uh, and if that continues, we are going to fall behind the rest of the country. And it's important for us as public health officials to remind our community that this is the reality. Uh, we need to be willing to study the role of guns and gun policy, uh, the role of screen time, the role of communications technology on our health. We need to talk about the importance of making investments in what's very often called now in the policy world pre-distribution. What are the rules of the game that make it so disadvantageous for certain communities? Uh, you know, there's been a wholesale uh, war on organized labor in this country for decades, and it's disempowered the ability of workers to negotiate for the value they create and to benefit from the value that they're creating. And the slide I showed you earlier, which showed how economic gains from economic recovery are distributed, that's no accident. That is a direct causal effect of a diminishment of worker power to sort of capture the gains from what comes from the work that they do. So in all of these areas, we need to speak about this important relationship. And I think fundamentally, what we really have to do uh, is listed here towards the bottom, is improve people's understanding of the social determinants of health. Uh, I think there's still a lot of skepticism. There are an awful lot of politicians who still, still say health is an individual responsibility. And so uh, if you are unhealthy, this is your fault. Uh, and as long as we fall into that trap and let policymakers push us into that trap, uh, we will never as a society make progress on these broader uh, issues. And I think one thing that sort of is potential benefactor to us is the fact that this problem is so pervasive. You know, I will stand up here and I will humbly admit that I struggle with my weight. Uh, it is a hard thing, now that I'm over 30, to keep my weight down. And it is very hard to resist the croissants. It's very hard to resist the sweets. And, um, and this is a problem that we all share. And so I think there's an audience willing to listen to this. Uh, I think there's an audience willing to understand Tell us the story of what's happening to you rather than talk about yourself as the culprit and yourself as the source of failure. And I think that that message is a very important message that we can bring. So uh, look forward to a series of podcasts that I'll be putting together with our excellent communications staff at uh, NACDD. Uh, we are going to be looking at the Social Genome Project, which is an idea that came out of the Brookings Institution to link uh, the work of various state agencies and has been tried in a number of different states. Uh, we're going to talk about community action, civic engagement with Anthony Eiten. Uh, we're going to be exploring the social determinants of health and those concepts with folks like Karen DeSalvo. 
Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Ellinger from Minnesota about how he tried to raise the level of understanding in that state about the social determinants of health and the role they play. We're going to talk with uh, policymakers in housing and food security and income security policy around the importance of security enhancements in shaping health. And we're going to talk to folks in Michigan and others about the way that we in chronic disease can contribute to efforts around diminishing the role of ACEs. So look forward to that ahead. Thank you so much for your time. More resources from this presentation are available on the NACDD website, chronicdisease.org.